Please do turn in your Bibles once again to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. And we have come to the beginning of the Passion Week, the last week that Jesus lives and ministers on the earth, at least in his mortal body. He will continue some days later in his resurrected body, but he's only got less than a week left in his mortal body on the earth. This week begins, that Passion Week begins on a Sunday. And as you remember from last week, Jesus begins by entering into Jerusalem, riding on the colt of a donkey. He did that in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy from the prophet Zechariah. He does it to the praise and acclamation of the multitudes of people who are thronging him and cheering him. He comes in riding on that donkey and drawing forth that praise, knowing full well that their acclamation will heighten the aggravation of his enemies and that they will plot his destruction. But at this point, friends, it doesn't matter. The time of concealment is over. Now is the time for Jesus to come forth and to finish the work the Father has given him to do, which is to go to a cross and die for the sins of his people. This means that he needs to put himself within reach of his enemies. The entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem is called the triumphal entry. It's triumphant not in the way that the people were desiring and expecting. He doesn't come in to conquer the pagan Romans. How was it triumphant? I said last week, it was a triumph of divine love. It was a triumph of him who was so determined to suffer the humiliation and suffering and death on a cross to save his people that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and would not turn back. It was the it was the triumph of him who said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. And if that entry into Jerusalem in that way angered his enemies, what he does on the following day, Monday, is going to really enrage them and make them determined to put him to death. What did he do on the Monday after. Remember, he comes in in the triumphal entry and he retreats back to Bethany, the friends of, of his, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, two miles north. Now he comes back into Jerusalem the next day, which is Monday. What did he do on that Monday? Well, picking up on verse 11, where Jesus, after the triumphal entry, entered the temple and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12, since it was already late. On the next day, that's Monday of the Passion Week, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a, ro a, a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him 
for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. Two events took place on that Monday of the Passion Week, and these two events have the same theme. They are both prophetic of and symbolic of the same basic reality. They both teach us the same message. What we're going to see this morning is the symbolic cursing of the fig tree and the symbolic cleansing of the temple. Let's begin with the symbolic cursing of the fig tree. Again, verses 12 to 14. On the next day, Monday, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. First thing I note is that Jesus had a reasonable expectation. It's Monday morning. He's coming two miles away from Bethany, and he's hungry. And he sees this fig tree at a distance, and he thinks, well, likely that fig tree will have figs, and it will satisfy my hunger. Did Jesus have a right to expect figs from that fig tree? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to understand something about fig trees in the Middle East. What was true then, and I suppose it's still true now, is there are two seasons for figs. The fall season, the later figs, they get ripe between August and October, and they tend to be larger figs. Shoots from those figs then sprout up in the spring as the early figs, which tend to be smaller. Usually they begin to appear around the end of March and are ripe by May or June. But an interesting thing about the early figs, the spring figs in the Middle East, is that the fruit appears about the same time as the leaves. Sometimes the fruit even appears before the leaves. And so as Jesus looks at this fig tree that was in leaf, he had every reason to expect that there would be fruit on that fig tree. It was in leaf. It was displaying full foliage. And even though it was early, this tree was promising fruit. And so seeing the leaves, he expected fruit. But Jesus makes a disappointing discovery. When he gets closer to the tree, he realizes that the tree is nothing but leaves. Even though it says, for it was not the season for figs, but this tree, for some reason, was displaying its leaves. It was deceptively flaunting foliage, promising fruit, because those spring figs showed up at the same time or even before the leaves. So if there are leaves, there should have been fruit. But this fruit tree was all promise and no provision. And consider the symbolic action. When Jesus sees that, wait a minute, there are no figs on this tree. It's all leaves and no figs. What did he do? He cursed the fig tree. May nobody eat fruit from you again. Now, a superficial reading might think that Jesus was frustrated. Jesus was in a stressful situation. He was a little peeved in his anger, and because there was no fruit on the tree to satisfy his hunger, he cursed the fig tree, much like somebody in frustration might kick the dog or or punch the wall. But friends, as you know, such thinking is totally unworthy of the dignity and purity of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was not a little temper tantrum because there was no fruit on the tree. What Jesus did on that occasion has a much deeper significance. What was it? Well, remember that in the Old Testament, God often directed the Old Testament prophets to perform symbolic actions 
to act out certain parables to vividly drive home some spiritual point. I'll give you a few examples. In Jeremiah 13, the prophet Jeremiah was told to tie a linen band around his waist that would cling to his waist. And then he was told to put that that waistband in a crevice of a rock. And many days later, he was to retrieve the waistband. And guess what? It was ruined. That was an object lesson for what, what God was going to do to Judah. Just like that waistband is ruined, it no longer clings to your waist. The people of Judah were no longer clinging to God, and they were facing judgment. In Jeremiah 19, the same prophet is told to buy a potter's earthenware jar. And in front of some of the elders and the senior priests in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, he's to proclaim the word of the Lord, and it was a word of calamity. God is going to bring slaughter. God is going to bring desertion to the people. Then he has to break the jar as an illustration of what God was going to do to sinful Judah. In Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel is told to eat a scroll which becomes sweet like honey in his mouth, and then he's told to declare the words of God. In Ezekiel 12, Ezekiel is told to prepare baggage and then to dig a hole at night through the wall in front of the people. This was to symbolize that you're going to be exiled. You're going to be leaving with baggage. You're going to go to Babylon. It was a vivid illustration in parabolic form of a spiritual truth. Very sadly, in Ezekiel 24, God says to Ezekiel that your wife is going to die. And she is described as the desire of his eyes and the delight of his soul. Why? As a picture of what God's going to do to the temple. The temple was the desire of the eyes of the Jewish people. It was the delight of their soul. Very painfully for Ezekiel, God was going to illustrate that he was taking that desire of their eyes and delight of their soul away by literally taking the life of Ezekiel's wife. And so Jesus, in cursing the fig tree, is simply following in the train of these lesser prophets who, by God's direction, used physical actions to symbolize and signify spiritual realities, in particular, coming judgment. Now, as a further confirmation that that's what Jesus was doing, I read to you from Luke 13, 6 to 9. Listen to these words, Luke, Gospel of Luke 13, 6. He began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and and he did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Do you see that the fig tree there is a symbol for Israel? God is looking for fruit in Israel. When he doesn't find fruit, he's going to bring threatened judgment. This fruitless tree should have reminded his disciples of a prediction that was made through Jeremiah 
about the people of his day, the people of Judah, who were slated for judgment. In Jeremiah 8.13, God says, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. What is Jesus saying then in cursing the fig tree and committing it to perpetual barrenness? May nobody ever eat from you again. He's giving a prophetic sign of the judgment of God that is coming upon the people imminently, a judgment that is deserved. The fig tree is Israel. You see, Israel is full of leaves. They're full of the outward display of religion. Their leaders like to dress pompously in in religious garments. They love taking titles to themselves. They love being called rabbi in the marketplace. They were zealous to make other followers of their religion. They were careful to obey the minutia of the law, tithing mint, dill, and cumin. They were professing allegiance to the law of Moses. They had all the outward appearance of religion, all the outward signs, all the outward symbols of the worship of the true God. But where was the fruit? Where was the repentance? Where was the heart obedience to God? Where was the embrace of God's Messiah who was there in their midst? None of it. All leaves, no fruit. All outward show of religion, but no reality of fellowship with the living God. And so Jesus curses the fig tree, not because of a carnal temper tantrum, not because he's angry with the tree, But it's a symbolic action showing that Israel, in its hypocritical show of religion, yet without fruit, is ripe for judgment, just like the fig tree. Now, what Jesus does to the fig tree and why parallels what he's going to do in the temple and why. So let's shift to see the symbolic cleansing of the temple. As Jesus had a realistic expectation to expect fruit on the fig tree because it was in full leaf, usually that means there's fruit, what did he have a right to expect when he walked into the Jewish temple? Well, I want to tell you, but before I do, let me just give you a background on on the temple in Jerusalem. As you know, the idea for the temple in the beginning uh, was conceived by King David. He wanted to make a house for God. King David was not permitted to do that because he is said to have been a man of war and bloodshed. But the privilege of building the temple fell to his son, Solomon. And Solomon undertook that endeavor. It is recorded in 1 Kings 8. It took um, eight years or seven years to build that temple in the 900s BC. That temple experienced uh, plunder, renovation, desecration. Finally, it was destroyed in 586 BC at the hands of the Babylonians when they came in and took the people into exile. After the people returned from exile, they rebuilt the temple, which took 20 years. Some of the old men who had seen the previous temple were disappointed. In fact, they wept because it didn't hold the candle to the previous temple. That temple, that second temple, ended up getting plundered and desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 BC. Judas Maccabeus, a Jewish zealot, cleansed it and rededicated it three years later. And it was that second temple on which Herod made some renovations and alterations and enlargements. He began in 19 uh, BC, 
completed it in 27 uh, AD, as it, we're told in John chapter 2, it took 46 years. That temple, that second temple, enlarged and renovated by Herod, that was the temple that Jesus enters here. As to its structure and appearance, it was magnificent. How do we know? The Jewish uh, historian Josephus and other writers tell us about this temple. The first and most spacious court you came into was the court of the Gentiles, extending all around, and it had paved, it was paved with variegated marble of the highest quality. And even Gentiles were allowed to go there. You go 14 steps up and you come to the women's court where the women were permitted. 15 steps higher and you come to the men's court or Israel's court. And then you take several more steps up, you come to the priest's court. That's where the 15-foot diameter uh, laver was on, on the four uh, bronze lions. And then 12 steps further, and that's where you get to the actual sanctuary, which was the holy place, and then separated by a veil, the holy of holies, the place into which the high priest only went once a year uh, on the day of atonement. It was beautiful. It was magnificent on the inside. It was magnificent on the outside. On the outside were large colonnades, massive plates of gold on the side, so that if the sun shone on those plates, you'd have to look away for fear of being blinded because of the reflection of the sun on the gold plates on the side of the temple. It was an awe-inspiring structure, both on the outside and within. But what was its purpose? For that Turn back with me or just listen as I read portions from 1 Kings 8, which accounts for the original building of the temple dedicated by King Solomon. There we are told what God's purpose was for the temple. In 1 Kings 8.13, I read, I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever, says Solomon. It's a place where God would manifest his presence, where he would dwell. Now, he wouldn't be confined there, right? As Solomon says, uh, God cannot be confined to any spatial location, but God would manifest his special presence there. It was a place for God to dwell among his people. And as to the purpose of it, let me just read some portions beginning at verse 31. As Solomon dedicates the temple, After seven years of building, he says, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in your house, in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your people. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, then again, hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people when they come and pray in this house. Verse 41 is especially significant. Also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, where they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all 
for which the foreigner calls you to do in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. You see what Jesus says? What was this house for? It was a house of prayer. It was to be a house for people to come and pray, for humble supplicants to seek the face of God. When they sinned, they could come and pray for forgiveness. When they were defeated by their enemies because of their sins, they could come to this house and pray. When there was no rain from the heavens, when there was famine, when there was pestilence, when there was blight, when they were going out to battle, it goes on to say, they could come to this house and pray to God where he was pleased to manifest his presence. And even foreigners, did you see that? Even foreigners were permitted to come and seek the face of the God of Israel in that place. And so as Jesus comes into the temple, what does he have a right to expect? He has a right to expect people quietly seeking God in prayer in the temple the place where God has manifested his presence, a place where humble supplicants were making their prayers to God, and a place where priests were making sacrifice. That's what he had a right to expect based on God's original intention for the temple. But what was his disappointing discovery when he got there? He came first into the first court, which be the court of the Gentiles, the most spacious court. What did he find when he got there? He found that they were buying and selling in the temple. Instead of earnestly praying and seeking God in the stillness of the temple court, he walked in upon the chaos and cacophony of a marketplace. Now, the worshipers in coming to the Passover had a choice. They had to sacrifice animals. They could either bring their animals from home or there were four places on the Mount of Olives where they could purchase their animals for sacrifice. But whatever the case, their animals had to be inspected by a certain mumchek who was one approved, and he would check to make sure they were without blemish. And you can imagine how scrupulous these checkers could be in finding defects, right? The other alternative is you could buy your animals in the temple and they were already pre-inspected. Wouldn't that be convenient? You didn't have to go through the scrupulosity of this man finding defects. They were already pre-inspected. And so make it easy for yourself. Buy your animals for sacrifice in the temple. But you can imagine how the ones selling the doves and the other animals were inflating the cost and taking advantage of the people. You know what it's like? Maybe it's a long time since we've been in the movie theater. But you know, you go into the movie theater, and I don't think you're allowed to bring your own food in unless you sneak it in a large purse. But you, the popcorn's exorbitant. The Coke is absorbent, absorbent in price, isn't it? Or you go into the stadium. How much for a, a little hot dog? You know, $6, $8. The price are But they got you, right? You can't bring your own food, and they got you. You're in there, and you got to pay their price. And so... The temple was a racket for those selling animals. There was buying and selling in the temple. Not only that, there was money changing. According to Exodus 30, there was an annual temple tax of half a shekel that had to be paid by those who were 20 years old and older. And it had to be paid in Jewish currency. But people were coming from all these other nations. They were coming from Persia and Tyre and Syria and Egypt. Some had Greek 
currency and Roman money, and it had to be exchanged for Jewish currency. It's like when I go to Holland, God willing, at the end of this month to visit our friends, I'm going to have to exchange our dollars for euros, and the dollar is not very strong these days. I'm going to get a lot less euros for my dollars, but I have to make that exchange. And again, the money changers were taking advantage of the people and making extra profit. In addition to that, the temple was being used as a shortcut for travel, and people were bringing profane things through the temple, defiling the temple. That's what Jesus found. What would have been especially galling to him is that the money, the profits from all of these sales would go to the high priestly family of Annas, and Annas was known as a greedy man. Josephus says of him, he was a great hoarder up of money. So imagine the impact on the Holy Son of God. Here is the place designated for the special manifestation of the glory and presence of God, a place of quiet, earnest, humble prayers to God. And even for those outside the the covenant community, even Gentiles could come and pray in this court of the Gentiles and seek the God of Israel. And instead, he finds this display of greed and corruption under the guise of religion. And imagine what it sounded like when Jesus walked into the temple. Imagine the the cacophony of noise. You had the lowing of the oxen, the bleeding of the sheep, the cooing of the pigeons, the jangle of coins, the arguing and shouting among the men. Imagine the smells, the filth of manure and dirt tracked in. Imagine the stench. But the worst stench in the nostrils of Jesus was the perversion of the worship of his father's house. This was his father's house. This was the place where the all-glorious God was to be reverently sought and worshipped. And it had been reduced to a place of carnal business. The filth and stench, where the filth of men's hearts stank more than anything else. All the leaves of religion, but no fruit, rotten fruit. And so, What was the symbolic action that Jesus took? In the case of the fig tree, all leaves and no fruit, he cursed the fig tree. May no man ever eat from you again. What does he do in the temple? Well, he comes in, he sees this horrible perversion of his father's house, and he disrupts it with a holy violence. Now, the first time he did this, recorded in John 2, we're told that he made a whip of cords. We're not told that he did that, that on this occasion. He may have, we don't know but he drives out the sellers. You've made this a robber's den. And the word robber describes those who plunder. These were swindlers. They were taking advantage of the poor people by selling them animals at exorbitant prices. And he drives out the sellers, but he also drove out the buyers. You say, were they guilty? Well, yeah, they were, they were patronizing the system. They were taking the path of least resistance and they were feeding into the system. So they were guilty as well. Jesus drives them out, he turns over their tables and their seats, and then he stands guard to make sure that nobody passes through as a shortcut to defile the temple with profane things. And as vindication for his actions, why does he do this? What does he say is his rationale for doing this? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Where did he get that? Isaiah 56. I read two verses. 
Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even those, those Gentiles, those outsiders, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. So based on that, that God's house was to be a house of prayer, Jesus here quotes that and he says, this is to be a house of prayer, a place where even the Gentiles can seek to worship God. But you have turned it into a robber's den. Where did he get that? Well, that comes from Jeremiah. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah 7, beginning at verse 8. This is what the Jews were doing in Jeremiah's time. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? The Jews of Jesus' day were living all kinds of immoral lives, adultery and other things, and then they were going to church and say, well, because I go to church, I'm okay. They'd show up at church, they'd stand before God in the temple, and they'd say, all that is forgotten because I'm, I'm going to church. I'm going to show up at the temple as if God is then going to erase all of that. It's like, you know, if you remember the old Westerns, when the guys in the black hat would rob a bank, then they would retreat to their den, their, their hideaway, whether it was a little shack in the woods or maybe a cave somewhere. There they would be safe. They could count their loot and divide it up. They'd rob, and then they'd go and hide, finding safety in their den. And Jesus said, that's what you're doing, just like they did of old. They would commit all these, these immoral acts, and then they'd go to church thinking they were safe because they were showing up at the temple. But Jeremiah goes on to say, and this is significant in that prophecy, but go now to my place which was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to the place which I gave you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brothers all the offspring of Ephraim. You think you can live an immoral life, show up at the temple and everything's fine? No, I'm going to drive you out. That was the prophecy in Jeremiah's day. And so, what is Jesus saying? As he comes in and he says, my father's house is a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus is saying, a curse on your religion. Just like the fig tree was a symbol of Israel, all leaves but no fruit, so is the temple. It's the right place, it's beautiful, it's ornate, it's the place ordained by my Father to manifest his presence, but you've turned it into a robber's den. It's all leaves, no fruit. In response, we're told in our text that the scribes began to seek to destroy him. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, 
for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Well, it means that now they're really getting serious. They were plotting his destruction all along, but now they're going to really get it done. They're going to figure out a way to get him killed. Interesting that they don't act upon it now. They were afraid of him. You see, Jesus was too popular with the masses. He had come in in that triumphal entry. They were still expecting, you know, he's going to be the, the king and overthrow the Romans. They were, they were enamored of his preaching, his teaching, so it wasn't safe for them to act now. And so they left him alone. And then, as was his pattern in that Passion Week, he leaves Jerusalem again. He goes to Bethany. As somebody has said, his hour has come, but not the minute, not the exact time for him to die. So there's the text. Let me make some applications. I have two that are historical and two that are more personal for us. First, historically, we see from this passage a prophetic anticipation of the New Testament church comprised of Jew and Gentile, don't we? Jesus, now the Old Testament predicted that there would be Gentiles in the kingdom of God, that he would be a light to the Gentiles. But here Jesus says that my house is to be a prayer for all the nations. It's interesting that right after he says that, they go out to plot his death. They didn't like the Gentiles at all. But Jesus is showing concern for the Gentiles. And remember that Mark is writing his gospel not to Jews, but to, to Gentiles. He's writing to a Roman audience they would appreciate the fact that Jesus is concerned for the Gentiles, that they would worship God, that they would know God, because his house, his temple, was a place for prayer for all the nations. And indeed, this is a bit of an anticipation of the New Covenant Church, of what is the New Covenant Church comprised? Jew and Gentile, right? Ephesians 2 tells us the dividing wall has been broken down and God has created one new man, one body, Jew and Gentile, on the same footing before God. And in my understanding, the church, the new covenant community, is the Israel of God. It is the fulfillment of all the promises made to national Israel. Now it's fulfilled in the spiritual Israel, the church. And we too, as far as I know, we're all Gentiles here, right? And we're part of that community because Jesus came to die, not only for Jews, but he came to die for Gentiles as it says in the Old Testament, through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He will be a light to the nations. All nations will serve him. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, Psalm 2. And we can be very grateful that we are part of that new covenant community purchased by Jesus on the cross. But then also, historically, we have a prophetic anticipation of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The fig tree was Israel. All leaves no fruit. And Jesus cursed it. In doing so, he was cursing this apostate nation. The perversion of the temple worship is denounced. He quotes Jeremiah 7, 11. You've made it a, a robber's den. You think you're going to find safety in the temple? And then in what follows, he pronounces judgment on the Jews in Israel's day. And in a sense, he's saying that about the Jews of his day. You are all show but no fruit. You've got the foliage of the temple, the foliage of the law of Moses and the sacrificial system, but there's no repentance, there's no humility, there's no obedience to God, there's no embrace of the Savior. You're all leaves, no fruit. You're all show, but no truth. Jesus both wept over Jerusalem 
but he also, as here, pronounces its judgment. As you know, that came about in 70 AD at the hands of Titus and the Roman legions who overran it, destroyed the temple. And ever since then, the Jews have not had a temple. In a recent plane flight coming from California, I sat next to a Jewish man about my age who's actually from Ukraine. He had quite a story. His grandfather had been gassed in the gas chambers of Nazi Germany. His mother survived the labor camp of Auschwitz. I listened to his story, and then I tried to share the gospel with him because he was a religious Jewish man. And I tried to tell him that Leviticus 17.11 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That's God's appointed way, shedding of blood. I tried to point him to the sacrificial system. The only way our sins can be forgiven is by the shedding of blood. And just like the Jews of old, he was citing for me the rabbis. He was trusting the rabbinical writings rather than his own Bible. I couldn't get him to come to terms with his own Bible to try to show you, you need the shedding of blood. You don't have a temple. You can't shed blood to point him to the, well, I did tell him about the one blood shedding that would save him. But that temple was destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. No more sacrifices. Why? Because the one sacrifice to end all sacrifices was made by the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether Jew or Gentile, if you're going to come to God, you must come to God through him. But then a couple of more personal applications from the text. More personally, we learn that Jesus despises religious hypocrisy, don't we? He looks at that tree. He's got nothing against the tree, poor tree inanimate thing. Well, it's a living thing, but it's, it's not got a soul. He curses the fig tree, picture of Israel. You're all leaves, but no fruit. All the leaves are religious form and profession, but no fruit. They had the religious garments. They had the titles. They had the ceremonies. They paid lip service to the right law. They had the right place of worship. They had the right lineage. They were children of Abraham, but they didn't have spiritual life. Remember what John the Baptist said, when certain Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to him for baptism, he said, who told you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The Apostle Paul, when he addresses his fellow Jews in the book of Romans, they thought God was kind to them because they were favored by him. And he has to remind them in Romans 2, no, the kindness of God is to lead you to repentance. God has been kind toward you, not because he's pleased with you, but by his kindness, he wants to turn you back to him. They needed repentance. Jesus, you know, reserved his harshest woes, not for the prostitutes, not for the tax collectors, but for the hypocrites. His hardest words, read Matthew 23, were for the, the hypocrites. Why? Because hypocrisy is a lie. Hypocrites are liars. They profess one thing and they produce something else. And a religious hypocrite is worse because they claim to represent God and they misrepresent him. God is jealous for his honor and glory. What does it mean for us? It means, frankly, that Jesus despises Christian nominalism. He despises the hypocrisy of one who claims to be a Christian, but doesn't live like a Christian. They dress up for church, or we might say in our day, dress down for church. 
They go through the motions, they sing the hymns, they recite the creeds, they listen to sermons sometimes for decades. They may serve in the church as a church officer or sing in a choir, but they live like practical atheists throughout the week as though God doesn't exist. Such hypocrisy will be exposed either in this life or in the judgment, but the Lord despises hypocrisy because it's a lie and God is all about truth. He's the God of truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. God's word is truth. And as David in his penitential Psalm 51 says, you desire truth in the innermost being. God is the antithesis to deceit, the antithesis of lying. God is all about truth. And the hypocrite is living a lie. Might that description fit anyone here. I'm not aware of anyone in our membership that is a hypocrite. Um, it's our job to try to recognize true regeneration and conversion, so we might have a regenerate membership in the church, right? But men are fallible. Pastors are fallible. God alone knows the heart. And hypocrites do creep into Christian churches, even good Christian churches, because their leaves are rather impressive. And we don't know the heart, and we don't know people's ultimate status. You know, it's better to be an honest unbeliever than a lying hypocrite, because at least the, the lying unbeliever knows where he stands, rather than being deluded into thinking I'm okay when he or she is not. Friends, the test of genuineness in the Christian life is always fruit. Don't we know it from the words of Jesus, Matthew 12, 33 and following. He says these words, as in other places, Sermon on the Mount, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good, for the mouth speaks out of wit that which fills the heart. The tree reveals the fruit. Fruit is the test. After telling us that we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. What's the very next verse? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Are you God's? Are you Christian? You're not saved by works, but works will be the fruit. It's not the root, but it will be the fruit. If there are no good works, there's no life. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The fruit of the light consists in goodness, righteousness, and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The test of genuineness in the Christian life is fruit. When God saves us, he not only forgives us, he changes us. If anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. All things are passed away, all things become new. Here are a couple of good questions for anybody to ask to affirm that you're the real deal and not a hypocrite. It's been said before, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You're the defendant on trial. He's a Christian, she's a Christian. What would the prosecuting attorney say to get you a guilty verdict? Well, he goes to church. Well, the other side would say, yeah, but the devil goes to church. Yeah, he, he re she reads her Bible. Yeah, but the devil reads his Bible. Here's another question. This really nails it. What can you explain in your life only by the grace of God? Only by the supernatural grace. Well, I go to church. Hypocrites go to church. The devil goes to church. Well, I read my Bible. Hypocrites read their Bible. 
No, what is the evidence in your life explicable only by the supernatural grace of God? Something like, I love Jesus. I want to be holy at any cost, not just happy. Now you're getting into the supernatural realm. That doesn't grow in natural Adamic soil. Now we're talking about supernatural grace. You want to know whether you're a hypocrite or not? Do I want to know whether I am? What is explainable in my life only by the grace of God? Well, one final application on a personal front that touches our lives directly. Jesus not only despises hypocrisy, Jesus despises irreverence in the formal worship of God. Do you see that? His house, which is to be a place of humble supplication and prayer, they've turned into a cacophony of a marketplace, place of buying and selling and making profit, all about them, nothing about God. And so God does not want irreverence in his worship. Now, what is the new covenant temple? We don't have a temple building anymore. What is the fulfillment the antitype to the old covenant temple building? I think you know the answer. Each of your individual bodies is a temple of God, 1 Corinthians 6, your temple of God, right? Bought with a price. But beyond that, what is the temple of God? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, when he says, do you not know that you, plural, ye, that's where the King James helps us, right? It tells us when it's plural, ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy or corrupt him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you, plural, ye are. We're the temple, friends. This is the temple. This is the place, the gathered church where, where God manifests his presence and his glory among his people. No longer a physical temple in Jerusalem. The church, every individual church is a temple of God. What does that mean, very practically, as we wind down? It means that we ought to take seriously our gathered worship. It means that pastors like me ought to be very careful about the way that we structure the worship of God, that it needs to be all about God. You see, what, what made the temple special? It wasn't the ornamentation and the adornment. It was that God was there. God was manifesting. God's presence was what the temple was all about. And the new covenant temple, the church, needs to have God as its focal point. That puts a burden on me and other elders that we make our worship centered in God. That we preach the word of God. We do not preach ourselves. That we make God's son and the gospel the center of our worship. That we make God's glory the goal of our worship. It needs to be all about God. It means that those of you who lead in prayer, in scripture reading, leading singing and, and playing and in preaching. We need to prepare our efforts to the best of our ability. That means I need to preach accurately to represent the mind of God faithfully to his beloved people, to prepare to read the scriptures and, and comment accurately, to pray as our men do, to lead us in prayer as best you can according to the will of God. Those of you who play instruments to play as skillfully as you can and prepare to lead the people of God into the presence of God by your instrumentation. And we all need to give attention to the words of God as they are read, as they are explained. Enter into the prayers and pray with the one leading us. We all need to bring our first fruits of our earnings as an offering to God. 
Now, God is not an austere taskmaster. He knows our frame that we're but dust. He knows when some mothers have had a weary time caring for kids, runny noses all week long, and you come just dragging yourself into church. He knows our frame that we're but dust. He knows when we come to our worship burdened down with the cares of the week before, maybe some bad news that we've heard. He knows our frame. He's not some austere taskmaster. He loves us. Sent his son to die for us, but it's because he loves us that we ought to give him our best in worship every moment of our lives, but even when we come for corporate worship. Let's offer the best prayers, the best playing, the best preaching, the best that we can offer God because he is worthy. And may the worship that ascends to our God from this place not cause him to be angry with us because we've turned his house into something it ought not to be. But as however flawed it is, because we're all flawed, may it be pleasing in his sight. Let's pray. Father, you have given everything for us. You've given the life of your son. You've purchased us. We are yours. Help us when we come, even for gathered worship, to give our best to you in our singing, in our preaching, in our praying, in our playing, in everything we do. Help us to do it to the best of our ability, so that our worship might come from hearts that truly love you and give our best to you because you are worthy. We ask in Jesus' name.